We are continuing our sermon series this morning called Disarmed, and, uh, and I want to review where we are for a minute in, in our passage, right? Our passage began with a command. Everything else flows from that command, right? That command is first, and, and everything else is built on it, and the command is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, right? That's, that's the foundational command for the rest of our passage, right? And, and, and we talked about how that verse is kind of a, a hallmark verse. It's one of those verses you see on a card or maybe you have it on a mug and, and you never really stop to ask, what does it actually mean, right? What does it mean to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? And, and, and because we don't really know, we tend to just fill in whatever we think it should mean. But, but we did take a week and we traced those key words, be strong, strength, and might. And we, we traced them through the book of Ephesians and, and tied them together because I think Paul has something very specific in mind that, that to be strong in the Lord means to be rooted and grounded in God's love, right? In our experience of God's love together as a community, we are to be rooted and grounded in God's love. That's what makes us strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might is talking about us um, dipping into the deep well of, of God's love in order to love others. We grow strong in love for others as we dip deeply into that deep well of God's love for us, right? So we are to be strong in the Lord, rooted and grounded in love, and in the strength of his might, which equips us then to, to love others. Instead of using others or competing with others or trying to defeat others, it allows us to love others, right? Humbly and joyfully, right? We're in this crazy battlefield as a culture right now, and most of us, honestly, are fighting the wrong battles, and, and we're doing it in the wrong strength, and we're using the wrong weapons because the enemy is, is wreaking havoc with his schemes. He, he, is, he is doing everything he can to, to distract us um, from our true battle. Our true battle isn't to win. Our true battle is to love, right? The, the, those that we're engaged with in culture, they're not the battlefield. They're the mission field, right? We are called to love, and the true battle is to love instead of to give over to pride or fear or anger or hatred or, or violence, right? We are to stand firm in God's love, and we are to stand firm in the strength of his might to love others, right? The only way we're going to be able to do this, the only way we're going to be able to stand against the schemes of our enemy the only way we're going to be able to withstand in this evil day is to put on the whole armor of God, right? So I want to just read again verses 10 through 14 of chapter 6, uh, just to kind of remind us of these, of these key verses. So I'm looking at chapter 6. We're going to be looking at 10 through 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Last week we, we talked about putting on the, the belt of truth. Today we're going to be talking about putting on the breastplate of righteousness to withstand in this evil day. 
right? If we're gonna, if we're going to stand against the withering attacks, um, that are just on us every single day in our culture, if we're gonna withstand in this evil day, we need the strength of Christ's righteousness to protect our hearts, not the weakness of our self-righteousness. So the breastplate, the breastplate was one of the most important pieces of armor. Obviously, it, it protects all of your vital organs. Now, Paul, of course, is using this metaphorically, the breastplate of righteousness. It's not an actual breastplate. Um, he's talking about protecting a key part of who we are, right? And often, this area of our vital organs is, is considered the seat of our emotional well-being, right? The, the ancient Israelites, and, and in, in the Hebrew Old Testament, you'll, you'll read this phrase that talks about uh, the bowels of affection, which is a really strange phrase, right? Not very romantic, but what they were saying is that's that's where we feel it, right? That's where we feel it, the, the bowels of affection. Now, in modern times, we don't talk about the bowels as as the seat of our of our emotional being. We talk about the heart, right? Again, vital organs, all right here. We're not talking about the actual physical beating muscle. We're, we're speaking metaphorically that that this represents our our emotional integrity, our emotional well-being. Now, obviously, it represents more than that, okay? So so in the Bible, when it talks about your heart, it's not just your emotional well-being, but it absolutely includes your emotional well-being. So in Paul's metaphor, somehow righteousness, when you put on the, the breastplate of righteousness, it acts like a protection for your heart. It is a protection for your emotional well-being. And I think if if you have experienced this season anything like me, man, I need that breastplate now, I think more than ever. Everything is exhausting. Everything is exhausting, right? We're struggling with anxiety and sadness and depression, with frustration, with anger, with fear. It seems like our hearts are under daily attack, right? Now, obviously, we're dealing with the ongoing pandemic, but but the pandemic isn't just a single thing. It's like a whole series of waves of a thing, right? It's like we're, we're on the seashore of this great pool or, or ocean of anxiety. It just comes in waves and it pounds us with wave after wave after wave with each new development and each new week and each new report of numbers and, and each new, new wave of, of illnesses and, and each new debate over what is important and what's not, right? And, and, and every couple of weeks, there seems to come along some other nasty thing riding in those waves that make it even worse, right? I'm not going to go back through all the weeks of the pandemic, right? Um, there's been so many things, but but there's some been some key things that have had ongoing effects on on really the emotional condition of our country, right? We're we're standing there getting pummeled by the waves of the pandemic, and then come the murders of Ahmoud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, right? We're we're standing there getting pounded by the waves, and then come the cranking up of the the political partisan battles taking place because we're in an election year, and everything becomes political, right? All of a sudden. Whether or not you wear a mask becomes a, a political statement and people are angry about what you're doing or what you're not doing and, and everything becomes controversial and everything becomes a statement. And, and then comes along now and we have the reopening of schools and, and all the tension that comes with, with having to make crazy decisions in a crazy time, right? I saw this meme this week and I think it pretty much nails it. Um, there are 
no good options right now. You know what I'm saying? Like whatever option you're looking at, you are looking like this, right? Going back in person, great. As long as there's not another outbreak, right? What in the world are we going to do when, when we have a teacher who gets COVID? Are you going to bring in a substitute? What happens when you get multiple teachers? Are you going to quarantine an entire class, an entire wing, right? Okay, great. We're going back online. That's awesome. How in the world am I going to go back to work if I have to watch my kids while I'm also working, right? Um, even, even if you can work from home, you're not going to be working nine to five because, because while you're working at home, you're, you're, you're trying to take care of your kids, right? Um, I bet you have that Dolly Parton stuck in your, in your, that song stuck in your head now, nine to five. Uh, you're welcome for that. Um, listen, as, as a culture, we spend so much of our time processing all of this on social media. Uh, which doesn't help, right? Social media is literally designed, literally designed to make you angry. It, it is how they keep you engaged um, and hooked, right? They they design it to create controversy because they know that, that if they get your hackles up, you're going to stay longer, you're going to post more, you're going to react more, you're going to repost. It's their business model, right? It is literally designed to stoke your anger. And it seems like we are really, in many ways, going crazy with all the crazy. Our hearts are under attack. We desperately need the breastplate of righteousness to protect our emotional well-being. But remember, if you're going to put on God's armor, you have to disarm the wrong armor, right? Your self-made armor, right? That's part of the premise that we've been talking about is the sense that in order to put on the whole armor of God, we, I have to take off the whole armor of Steve, right? I, I, we have to take off those pieces that, that, that we're putting in place to protect ourselves instead of putting on the protection that God offers us through the work of Jesus. And so what does it mean to put on the wrong breastplate? How do we identify the wrong breast, breastplate that we put on to protect our emotional well-being that actually keeps us from putting on the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness that we receive from God, right? To answer that, we need to consider the nature of righteousness, um, righteousness is a pretty churchy word. We don't use that word a lot outside of church circles. So we don't tend to think of it in, in non-religious terms. But here's the deal. We're all thinking in terms of righteousness, right? It's not just a religious thing. We're simply, when we talk about righteousness, we're thinking about that thing that makes you right. Everybody clings to something or some things that make you make you right, right? And, and you're going to seek to clothe your heart, protect your, your heart, your emotional well-being with what makes you right. You will put on a breastplate of righteousness. You will have a, a self-made breastplate, a protection that you're trying to clothe your heart with to, to protect yourself. Let me give you some examples, right? Let's say you're driven. Like you're just a driven personality and, and you, you tend to, to use money as your scorecard. Uh, as a result of that, you, you may clothe your heart in your success with money, right? If you're doing better now than you were before, if you're, if you're better in your job, if you're getting paid more, if you have a better position, if your stock portfolio, if you're, right, you're always measuring, you're always comparing, and, and if you're doing better, that clothes your heart, that there's a rightness that comes in. I was right. I was, I won, right? If you're driven um, by being helpful and relational, Right? You're not going to measure, your rightness isn't going to come from, from your scorecard with your investments. Your rightness is going to come from uh, clothing your heart um, 
with your success and being helpful, right? That you, you help the right people in the right ways at the right time and, and were seen as invaluable and, and, and experienced the gratitude of those that you helped, right? If you're intellectual and political, may, you may try to clothe your heart in your success of being able to articulate an argument well, right? Being able to, to clearly think through a complex economic or political or, or whatever situation and articulate your argument in such a way that, that you're, you, you're able to win, right? If you're, if you're progressive and compassionate, you may try to clothe your heart with, with your success in engaging injustice, right? You, you camp out at the intersections of intersectionality, right? Where, where you're looking at all of the abuses of power from, from the different angles and, and trying to figure out how, how you can become an advocate or a voice or an ally, right? You clothe your heart in your success in, in dealing with and engaging injustice, right? If you're, if you're religious, right? And, and you're just a good moral person, salt of the earth kind of person, you may clothe your heart in your success in defeating a specific sin or developing a specific pattern of, of pious behavior, right? L- listen, we're all going to try to clothe our hearts with our rightness, however we define it, right? That, that's where it changes, is, is you're going to define your rightness, what makes you right differently than, than somebody else, but you're going to try to clothe your heart, protect your emotional well-being with what makes you Right. So how do you know what it is? Right? Because essentially what we're talking about is, is self-righteousness. That's the very definition of self-righteousness. It is what makes me right. It is how I measure my rightness. Right? How do I know what my, my false breastplate of self-righteousness is? Well, the easiest way to tell is you need to ask yourself what puts you on the pride and shame roller coaster. You know what I'm saying? Like, what puts you on the pride and shame roller coaster? Like, when you're doing well and you're, you're feeling good about your rightness, you're succeeding in your rightness, you are achieving your, your rightness. When you're doing well, you feel well protected. You feel good emotionally. You feel secure emotionally. You, you feel, um, protected, right? And, 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 and it feels like you're at the top of a roller coaster. You're just going up. Right? You're going up and, and, and you're feeling good as you go up, right? And as a result, not only do you feel good about yourself, but you tend to also start looking down on others who aren't up where you are, right? Subtle. It's subtle. And some of you are going to be much more comparative than others, but, but it's always going to be there. This little pride that kicks in, right? For those who think money is the scorecard, right? Your investments are paying off. Your risks are, are paying dividends. You're, you were, you made the right choices at the right time. And, and you're feeling really secure and emotionally good. Man, you like to, in fact, you go check your stock portfolio. You check your website. You check your, you do it more than once because every time you do, it makes you feel good again, right? And, and you subtly start feeling like that person who's not doing as well financially. If they would just do what you did. If they were just as smart as you're smart, if they would just show the discipline you show, they could have what you have. They could experience what you experience, right? For those who think of their rightness as being helpful, right? Helpfulness is their measure of rightness. When you, when you get it right, man, you are valued for your help, right? You get that feedback that, that, 
that you really are, man. You were the perfect person at the perfect time offering the perfect thing. And, and, and it just makes you feel invaluable and, and seen. And, 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 and you can subtly at times start looking down on others, despising others who aren't as helpful as you, who maybe are just takers and not givers, who, who miss opportunities to help others. And you're like, man, they're just, they're so selfish, right? For those of you who are intellectually and politically wired, you find yourself um, kind of hunting for uh, easy prey, right? Looking for stupid memes just so you can blow them up with your knowledge, right? You start looking for, for ways to demonstrate your intellectual superiority. You're feeling good. Your, your arguments are all in line. You have the perfect answer for these silly challenges, and, and you're just out there and and um, and you start despising the people you blow up because they're obviously not as intellectually astute as you are. They clearly don't think as well as you think. They don't see as clearly as you see, right? Those with, that are progressive and compassionate, right? Well, how can you how can you become prideful in being compassionate and loving and caring for other people? Well, you start considering yourself as uh, I don't know, truly woke, right? Like like I see the intersection of injustice more clearly. Than, than all of these ignorant people around me, right? I, and you start to despise and, and, and continually correct anyone that, that isn't as clearly aware of the injustices as you are. So, so in order to stand up for injustice, you start correcting every form of injustice and you do it with a, ah, a little bit of an arrogance. You do it with a little bit of a patronizing air, right? Because clearly they're, they're not as... as aware as you are, right? For those that are religiously and morally driven, right? Again, how, how, you know, you're feeling really good. You're feeling really good about your, your overcoming these sin patterns of developing these pious behaviors and, and behave, you know, you're, 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 you're under control and, and you're doing the right things and you're not doing the wrong things. And, and, and you kind of get this feeling that, man, God, God's got a little bit impressed with me right now. I'm really growing, Right on on that hill of spiritual maturity, man. I'm I'm getting up here. I'm I'm way better than I used to be, right? And and so you start feeling pretty good that God's enjoying what He sees when He looks at you, and and then you look at others and you see their lack of discipline, you see their struggles, you see their uh, lack of theological awareness or expertise, or or you see them, and you just start, man. If you just if you would just be more like me, if you would just try harder like me, if you would just, you know what I'm saying? Like, like anyone who rides this roller coaster knows what it's like to go up the hill. When you're going up the hill, you feel secure. You feel protected. You feel valued. You feel, it just feels good. The problem is the roller coaster never stays at the top of the hill because pride has two faces. One is self-congratulation and the other is self-abuse, right? Pride will puff us up and make us see things that aren't there and make us feel secure in ways that we're not truly secure, but pride will also turn inward and condemn us and destroy us for not measuring up to our own expectations, our own measuring sticks, right? We switch from the puffing up of pride to the crushing weight of pride, which is shame, right? So let me just ask you this. What... What happens when you don't succeed? And whatever it is that you think doesn't make you right, right? What, what happens when you don't succeed? What happens to your emotional well-being when your investments tank? 
and you lose financially? What happens to your emotional well-being when, when someone doesn't need your help? In fact, they, you try to help them, they, they, they don't even notice that you're trying to help. They don't need it, they don't value it, they don't like it, or worse, maybe you try to help and you actually end up hurting. You try to help, but you actually end up making the problem worse. What, what, what happens to your emotional well-being when, when your best argument gets exposed and refuted and, and people see you as foolish? And, and not as, as intelligent. What happens to your emotional well-being when, when you are exposed as, as being part of the very injustice that you're so proud of defeating? What happens to your emotional well-being when, when you're called out and you recognize that you are, in fact, part of the problem? What, what happens to your emotional well-being when you fall back into those, those sin patterns that you thought you had defeated, right? Or, or the positive habits you thought you had permanently developed just kind of disappear when things get stressful and, and, and you feel like you're what we call backsliding, right? You were way up here, you thought you were doing great, and now you're struggling, so you feel like you're just... What happens to your emotional well-being, yo? What happens? Do you feel threatened? Do you feel exposed? Do you feel afraid? Do, do you feel exhausted and tired? Do, 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 you, do you just want to run away? Do you just want to disconnect? Or do you want to power up and, and destroy? What happens to your heart when you're being plunged on the flip side of pride? Listen, self-righteousness is a horrible guardian of your heart. Right? It is a horrible guardian. Whatever it is you think that makes you right, that you're trying to clothe your emotional well-being in, man, it is, it is a horrible guardian of your heart. It puffs you up and makes you vulnerable in ways you don't understand because you're being puffed up. And then it plunges you down into the, 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 the weight of shame and destroys you there and pummels you. Listen, it doesn't, it doesn't, self-righteousness doesn't protect your heart and exhaust your heart. It doesn't protect your heart. It exhausts your heart. These things that you think make you right don't protect you. They, they hurt you. These ways that we are trying to make ourselves feel right, these, these self-salvation projects, these projects that we're, we're trying to fix ourselves, make ourselves truly valuable, make ourselves truly worthy of love, make ourselves truly worthy of respect, make ourselves truly, truly worthy, right? There are ways of, of trying to fix ourselves for ourselves, for the world, or for God. They're dead ends. It's like we're building cardboard armor for a very real battle. And that cardboard armor offers zero protection. It does not protect our hearts. And what's the funny thing is, is it costs us everything to build it. We put all of our energy into building this cardboard armor. And we just think, if I could just make it stronger, if I could just add another layer, if I could just, if I could just do one more thing, if I could just, and we keep working and working and working, and it never stops being cardboard. You never stop making yourself more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Let me give you an illustration. There was a movie that came out in the early 80s. Um, I remember it. Uh, because I, I enjoyed, I watched it. I was at my dad's place. He had a, uh, apartment over a, over a garage. Um, and, uh, which was awesome because I could watch movies on his TV and he had these huge speakers, which in the eighties, you know, they were those stand up giant, you know, towering speakers and he had them sitting on cinder blocks so that it would reduce the amount of bass being 
traveling out into to the surrounding uh, apartments. And um, so Chariots of Fire came out and it had an incredible soundtrack. I mean, it just, I, I can hear it in my head right now. It was this, this phenomenal soundtrack. But it's the story about this guy, Eric Little, uh, who's a runner, and Harold Abrahams. And, and they're both guys that are, that are at the top of their game, and they're both phenomenally good runners, and they're, they're looking to compete in the 1924 Olympics. They're, they're exceptional athletes, like, like best in the world. But they're competing for two very different reasons. Um, Harold M. Abrahams, at one point in the movie, as he's looking forward to his race, says this, um, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? See, Abraham's was running to justify his whole existence. I don't think there's any better way of framing what I'm trying to get at. This idea of us trying to, to build this armor that makes us worthy, right? That makes us right, that justifies our whole existence. He came into the blocks and he felt the, the crushing existential weight of having not just to win a race, but to save his heart from the crushing weight of inadequacy and exposure and, and uselessness. Eric Little, on the other hand, uh, who um, was the other runner in the story, has a, there's a great quote in the movie from him. Eric Little said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Like you'll see him in scenes in the movie where they're both just exerting themselves, and Eric Little's smiling. Right, He is just smiling as he runs because as he runs, exerting himself, putting himself completely into it, he feels the pleasure of the God who gave him the speed. All right, let me ask you something with this illustration. It doesn't matter who wins the race. Somebody does win, but let me ask you something. Does it, does it matter? Do you think that if Harold Abrahams won the race, he would be completely and forever protected from the existential exposure that came from feeling like an outsider, somebody who didn't measure up, somebody who needed to prove himself? Do you think that would have finally and totally secured his heart behind an armor of rightness? Or do you think he would have had to have continued to find new ways to, to prove himself to himself and to the world? Do you think he would have suddenly been freed into this place of eternal and lasting joy? Well, I think so. I don't think so, because, because what he was trying to gain couldn't be gained in the way he was trying to gain it, right? The rightness that he sought couldn't be gained by winning a race. Now, let me ask you this. If Eric Little loses, do you think he loses his joy? If Eric Little loses the race, do you think suddenly he's plunged into, into the weight, weightlessness of shame and existential despair? I don't think so. I think he's still filled with joy. Why? Because God made him fast, and when he runs fast, he feels the pleasure of God. Right? He doesn't measure his, 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 his security by his success. He doesn't measure the, the, the well-being of his heart by, by how well he proves himself or fixes himself or 
There's no amount of losing that could steal Eric Little's joy. See, that's the difference between the breastplate of self-righteousness and the breastplate of true righteousness. The breastplate of self-righteousness at best offers imaginary protection and at worst actually increases the pain that comes from having an exposed heart. We want the breastplate of righteousness, the true breastplate of righteousness that is in fact part of the full armor of God. So so what do we mean exactly when we we talk about putting on the breastplate of righteousness? Right? What what is it and how do we do it, right? How do we have this kind of unshakable joy in the face of of all of the uncertainty in our time right now, in the face of an uncertain election, in the face of an uncertain fall with with what's going on with schools, in in the face of of an uncertain turn in the pandemic as we're seeing numbers going all over the place and nobody even really knows how to interpret them at this point. How How do we have a joy that comes from knowing our hearts, our emotional well-being is secure behind this breastplate of righteousness that protects us from the instability of this wicked and evil day? Well, first of all, we need to understand what the Bible means by righteousness. We're not talking about what makes us right, as in something we do. It means something God has done to make us right as a result of something he's done. Right. So we're talking about righteousness. We're going to talk about two critical pieces, positional and practical. Positional righteousness and practical righteousness. So positional righteousness is something that is given to me as a gift. Uh, When I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am positionally righteous before God. That simply means that that I have a a permanent position in the realm of righteousness, right? It, It is a gift to me. It is what God gives me when I believe in Jesus. It's the result of, of double imputation. Again, huge theological words. We, we defined those earlier uh, in the year when we were looking in Romans um, chapter 3. But, but double imputation means this. My sin was imputed to Christ, credited to Christ, right? Like a, like a, uh, a ledger, right? My debt was imputed or credited to Christ, and he paid it. And then his righteousness was credited or imputed to me, and it now is on my ledger. So he took my debt, I take his righteousness. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, I absolutely love this verse, spells this out so clearly. It is is 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says this, For our sake, he, that that is God, made him, that would be Jesus. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin." who knew no sin. When when was Jesus made to be sin? When he was put on the cross. Right? When he bore my guilt as my substitute, when, when he was dying my death. But he himself didn't know any sin. He hadn't committed any sin. He had no guilt of his own, right? So So my sin was imputed to him. My guilt, my shame, he took my place as my hero and my substitute. For, for our sake, he made him to be sin who, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, when we believe in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Catch that. We might become the righteousness of God. Not just we might 
learn how to become righteous. We might learn how to grow in righteousness. We might learn how to fix the bad things we had done in the past. It had nothing to do with that. We might become the very righteousness of God, not the best versions of ourselves, but God's righteousness. Christ's active obedience is credited to my account, and I am now clothed and covered in the very righteousness of God. This is the radically unintuitive good news of grace. This is what is mine as a believer in Jesus. When God looks at me, he sees his son, Jesus. And he sees me, but he sees me through the the glory of the righteousness and obedience of his son. I can't put this on. Christ put it on me. God put it on me as a result of the work of Christ. Christ died for me as my substitute. He rose again for me uh, to invite me into the full blessing of his victory, right? I can't put this on. God put it on me. I can't take it off. I didn't earn it. I, I can't unearn it, right? It was a gift of grace to me. And as a gift of grace, I didn't qualify for it. I can't disqualify for it. It is, it is mine. I have been clothed with the very active obedience of Jesus. Now, we need to get this, y'all, because this is the foundation. This is where we start. My positional righteousness, my imputed righteousness, is perfect, unshakable, immutable. It is the permanent gift of grace. Why? Because Jesus permanently paid the price of my sin. Jesus permanently rose from the grave in victory over my death, my rebellion, my sin. So when I believe in Jesus, I am completely, permanently, securely covered in the very righteousness of God. It is my permanent position before God because Jesus won it for me. But Paul tells us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So if this isn't a righteousness I put on, because I don't, I receive it. I receive it. It's, It's mine. What does it mean to put on? the breastplate of righteousness. That's the difference between positional righteousness that is given to me in Christ and practical righteousness in which I grow with Christ. Does that make sense? So so positional righteousness is, is who I've been declared to be in Jesus. Practical righteousness is how I grow in Jesus how I am transformed uh, to be like Jesus in practical terms, right? Because there's a gap between what I've been declared to be and who I actually am. There's a gap between between what Jesus has won for me and declared me to be and who I am, right? Because I'm a sinner. I'm redeemed by the grace of God. I am forgiven by the grace of God. I am made new by the grace of God, but I am still a sinner. I still have the flesh, that internal restless rebellion against God. I am still wrestling with worldliness. I am trying to find the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. I am trying to do life in ways that that keep me independent from the God who equips me to do life. I, I am trying to ultimately be like God. There's a restless energy within me of rebellion against God. And and as long as that energy is here, there's a gap between what I've been declared to be and what I actually am, Right? And as I grow in in becoming more Christ-like, as I grow in my humble dependence on God to be transformed into the image of the Son of God, I grow in my practical 
righteousness. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. The way we do that. The way we do that. Here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. The temptation a lot of times is to turn your growth in Christ into a new self-improvement project. That's the temptation, right? The flesh will even try to take something as holy and as beautiful as sanctification and turn it into something you can do for your glory in your own power um, apart from humble dependence on God, right? You, you, he'll, he'll, he'll twist it so that anything he can do to get you to be separated from the love of God and humble dependence on God, joyfully resting in the approval of God and instead working to try to earn what God only gives by grace. If he can get you there, he, he gets you out of the armor and vulnerable to attack. He gets you sidelined in the battle uh, where he doesn't have to worry about you, right? The way we grow in putting on the breastplate of righteousness is not by fixing ourselves for God, right? It's not proving ourselves, looking down the four-foot-wide, ten-second avenue of my day and think, I have, I have that time to justify my existence. I have that time to fix myself. I have that time to, to defeat these bad things and do these right things. No, it's I have, God has created me and given me this incredible gift, love, and I feel his pleasure when I walk in it. I feel his pleasure when I grow in it. I feel his pleasure when, when I explore it. When I find, when I find new delight in how much I'm loved. When I find new power in, in how much I'm approved. When I, when I find my heart resting once again in, in the absolute delight of my holy heavenly father. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. When I feel his delight, man, I feel joy. And that gives me energy to grow. And, and to change, right? To put on the, the breastplate of righteousness is first to rest in the imputed righteousness that's been given to you in Christ. To rest in the reality that you are, in fact, already righteous. It has been declared and it has been done. Now, you haven't fully received the experience of that gift, but it's yours. He has made you into the very righteousness of God and, and, and you will be transformed into it, right? You are already loved. You are already accepted. You are already delighted in by the God who created you. Nothing you do can increase his love for you. And nothing you do can diminish his love for you. That's why it's grace. The unconditional, unreserved love of God. It is grace. But grace isn't just something we receive, like a, like a free ticket to heaven, right? That, that's, a, that's a cheap grace. That's what Bonhoeffer called it. And what he meant by that, not was that it, that it, that it was cheap in a sense that it wasn't valuable, but, but cheap in the sense that we simply wanted a benefit without the reality that got us the benefit, right? Grace is love. Right? We don't want just the result, hey, I get to go to heaven. We want the love itself. We want the experience of the grace itself. Grace is a gift that, that we don't just receive and go put on the shelf and wait until we die so we can go to heaven. It's the gift that keeps on giving it as a transformative experience of love of God. It, it doesn't just cover you with Christ's image. It promises to change you into Christ's image. Listen, when you get grace, 
Or better, when grace gets you. <laughs> when grace gets a hold of your heart and humbles your pride and, and quiets your fear and, and comforts your, your sorrow and, and meets you in your loneliness and, and, and calms your, 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 your distraction, it changes you. So that the things that you do are no longer acts of, of self-righteousness, self-improvement, self-fixing, self-performance, right? There, you don't do things in obedience to God or in, in, in order to make you right. You do them because you are right. You don't do, do them to earn God's love. You do them because you have God's love and because you delight so much in that love. You want to experience more of it. Do you see the difference? Because it's critical. When we work from the imputed righteousness of Christ and then grow in our practical righteousness where we become more like Christ, we're doing it um, in a way that, that, that works from love, not to earn love. And what it does is it frees us. It frees you to be more of who you were created to be. It frees you from comparison. You don't have to compare yourself to others to measure your worth. Your worth is already established in, in the declaration of the love of God, right? You don't have to compare yourself. You don't have to be the best. You don't even have to be better. You, you don't have to be anything, right? It frees you from, from, from using your talents to try to justify your experience or, or, or to prove your value to enjoying your talents and, and, and realizing God uniquely created you in your unique way, not so that you could be better than others, not so you could prove yourself, but so that you as a unique person can be to the glory of God. It frees you from the roller coaster of pride and self-condemnation because you don't have to prove yourself to anyone, not even yourself. You don't have to perform. You don't have to pretend. You are deeply and profoundly loved, which allows you to be absolutely and completely honest with yourself and with others, even as you grow in grace, right? It frees you as a Christian from religious performance. You don't have to impress other Christians. You don't have to impress your neighbor. You don't have to keep up this image, right? Because grace, man, grace, it frees you, which means in the end that it frees you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Because it frees you in love to love. I no longer have to approve myself or improve myself or fix myself to be loved. I obey God. Not, not to prove myself to God, not to earn something from God, but because I'm already loved by God. And I want to obey God because it's an expression of my returning love to a God who loves me and wants to bless me. I no longer need to defeat you or to be better than you, or to compare myself to you, or to destroy you, to justify myself. Why? Because I'm justified. I'm already right. I can love you instead of use you, or compare myself to you, or try to get something from you. I can love you even as I am loved. I can lay down my life for you because I lose nothing by doing so. Because there's nothing you can take from me there's nothing you can add to me. Ultimately, everything I have is a gift of grace and it is secure, as secure as Christ is risen. My life is hidden with Christ in God. That gives me a security. 
to grow in my experience of the imputed righteousness of Christ and in the actual progressive righteousness that comes from being changed into the image of Christ by loving God and loving my neighbor so that I can run my race with joy. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this incredible gift of righteousness. Man, it came at such a cost. It is free for us. Grace is. It's free for us. We, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and I guess it is costly in the sense that we have to give up everything that's not working. We have to give up everything that's betraying us. We have to, we have to recognize that, that our, our faith in ourselves is misplaced and, and our hope in, in our self-righteousness is, is so that we, can re- we need to repent of these, of these false faiths to embrace our true faith in you. But man, I thank you that you loved us so much that you paid the price so that my shame could be removed, my guilt could be paid for, and I could become the very righteousness of God in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this chaotic time to know how to put on the breastplate of righteousness that our hearts might be protected, that our emotional well-being might be protected behind your love. We pray this in the worthy and beautiful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.